So it has been a while since we turned our attention to, to the book of Revelation, uh, so we probably do need to remind ourselves of where we're up to. Uh, it was about a month ago we last looked at it and we looked at chapter 8, and we were working our way through the second series of seven that we find in the book of Revelation. In chapter 6 to 8 we saw the seven seals, um, and then we, um, not, not the art, art seals, um, as in um, seals on the book, um, and when we get to chapter 16 in a while's time, uh, we will come across the seven bowls. Um, but here in chapters 8 to 11 are the seven trumpets. Um, ch- chapter 8 detailed the first four trumpets, and we saw the unleashing of various natural disasters upon the world. Um, what this all tells us is that God has acted and will continue to act in judgment throughout history. What is often simply dismissed as natural phenomenon is in fact often God allowing the natural world to get the attention of his creation, to make us sit up and realise that really we aren't in control, that we are small and effectively powerless. But he doesn't allow these things to happen out of spite or as a way of showing us how big and powerful he is. His judgment is an act of love. It's a call to repent and to turn back to him. We also saw the importance of our prayers in this chapter as well, our prayers that are joined with those heavenly prayers. Um, and God responds to our cries of, uh, for, inju- for justice and our cries for vindication from persecution. God's people are contributing to the process of judgment through our faithful prayers as they pray for the justice of God and as they seek for his kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Our prayers are a part of the testing and the sifting of humanity. The book of Revelation isn't just about God judging the world at the end. Throughout history and throughout scripture, we can see how God has acted in judgment in various ways. He will continue to judge those who act against him. And this chapter shows us that allowing the natural world to bring disaster, sorry, allowing the natural world to bring disaster is sometimes the way that that judgment comes. Ultimately, that judgment will reach a pinnacle when God finally brings his full judgment upon the whole earth. But what is also clear is that right up until the end, he gives the opportunity for repentance. As we continue with the seven trumpets, we will see that that opportunity is always there, even if it is often spurned by those who need it. Chapter 8 ended with the cry of an eagle calling out a stronger warning. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. Whilst the judgments of the first four trumpets were bad, what is to come in the sounding of the final trumpets appears to be even worse. If the first four trumpets were about natural disasters and the created world reacting to the sin of the world, then the final trumpets appear to be about judgment in the form of human invasion and destruction. As always in this book, we must keep what we know of the Old Testament in mind. There's plenty of it in this chapter. Uh, as I was mentioned a moment ago, I'm going to warn you now, if you found some of the book challenging so far, it's going to get a bit trickier in the next chapter. Um, the sounding of the fifth and sixth trumpets bring about a section of the book that is difficult to understand and interpret. And it's been uh, interpreted in many different ways. We're introduced to new characters uh, and vivid imagery and different scholars have looked at it and understood it in, in different ways. As we go through it, um, I'm going to do my best to make sense of it the way that I see it. However, you might disagree with my interpretation, and that's absolutely fine. Uh, when God wants us to know something for sure, he makes it pretty abundantly clear. 
So when we come across things that are maybe, maybe a little bit more tricky to understand in Scripture, it's okay to have differing opinions on its meaning. As long as we do our best to understand it in light of the rest of the Bible and what we know about God. For me, the key to understanding um, this bit, as well as the rest of the book, is to firstly think about the context of the first recipients of Revelation, then consider the allusions to the Old Testament and how that helps us to interpret things, and then how does that all relate to us today, as well as into the future, right until the end. Easy, yeah? Good. So I'm just going to have that there, but if you've got your Bibles, do have the, the chapter open as well, those first 12 verses. Um, for you to be able to follow along. So we've had the first four, trump- uh, sorry, first four angels blow their trumpets, and we've seen the impact that they bring. Here we begin um, with the, the fifth angel, and at the sounding of this trumpet, John witnesses another star that has fallen from the sky to earth. In the previous chapter, at the sounding of the third trumpet, we read about a great star falling from heaven. Uh, there, the star is mostly like, most likely to be understood as a meteor, because they were considered as signs of impending doom in the ancient world. However, here, the star is clearly personified. We are to understand it as a heavenly being under the influence of God. We are told that he is given a key to open the shaft of the abyss. Now, are we to understand this being as an invoice sent from God and under his authority, or is this an evil angelic being who has been expelled from heaven? We are told that they had fallen, and this could be understood in the same way as the fall of the morning star that we read about in Isaiah 14. Originally, Isaiah there was talking about Cyrus the Great and his fall from power, but that verse is often read as describing the fall of Satan from heaven as well. In the same way that Jesus describes in Luke 18 when he says that he saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. So this being could be a demonic being that is cast out of heaven. However, this character doesn't appear to be the same character as the angel of the abyss that we read about in in a few verses' time. Um, That angel emerges from the abyss at its opening, so they appear to be different characters. Therefore, this word falling could just mean descending. Um, Either way, God allows the unlocking of this abyss. It is done with his divine permission. As we've seen before, God is not the origin of evil. However, he allows evil to show itself to its fullest in order that it is exposed. And this can be difficult for us to understand. Why does God allow evil to do its worst? Well, we'll see as we move on in the book that by allowing it to be fully exposed for what it is, evil will eventually bring about its own downfall. As Proverbs 14.32 says, the wicked is overthrown through his own evil doing. As we continue, we will begin to see how this proverb becomes true of all of evil in the world. So what is this abyss that is opened? Well, we will encounter this place again when we get to chapter 20, as Satan is for a time locked in there securely. But where is it, or what is it? It is obviously associated with death and evil, but it is distinct from other places uh, like it in Revelation. In In the book, we find three other such places. In chapter 5, we read about the domain under the earth. Now, this appears to be the home of natural creatures, anything that doesn't inhabit the land or the sky. Its creatures, in chapter 5, they acknowledge and they worship God through their existence. And then there is Hades. Um, This is thought to be the realm of the dead in Greco-Roman mythology. It's a parallel to Sheol in the Old Testament. This is the temporary abode of the dead as they wait for the final judgment. And then the third place is the lake of fire in chapter 20. 
This is the place of final judgment and destruction. This is the imagery of Gehenna that Jesus spoke of in the Gospels. The abyss, though, is somewhere different to all three of those. In the Old Testament, the abyss refers to the chaotic primeval waters from which God formed the seas. Find that in Genesis 1-2 and Psalm 77-16. And so it signifies the threat of chaos that threatens to overwhelm the world, as well as a source of rebellion against God. In this book, the abyss is the source of evil. An abyss is seem- a seemingly, seemingly bottomless pit, and in ancient times many caves and crevices were considered to be mouths to the underworld, places of fear and of dread. When Jesus took his disciples to Caesarea Philippi, they stood at the mouth of a cave known to um, pagan worshippers as the gates of hell. Human sacrifices were offered there, and other, such, uh, other pagan gods such as um, the goat-like Pan were worshipped there. This is where Jesus calls Peter the rock that he will build his church upon. And what does he follow it up by saying? And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. However, John doesn't imagine this abyss as some geographical location on earth. He has been privileged to stand for a time in the throne room of God and see things from God's perspective. In the same way that heaven isn't just some place up there in the sky, as we've said before, we've looked at before, but another dimension that overlaps with our own human dimension. The abyss is the same. Instead of the abode of God and his heavenly angels and all things good, the abyss is the home of evil and of demons. Heaven overlaps with our own world when we act and fulfil our purpose as God's creation. But the abyss also spills over into our world on a regular basis when we act out of selfishness and pride, hatred and all other things that oppose God. In Mark 7, Jesus spoke of another abyss from which all kinds of wickedness, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, treachery, debauchery, envy, slander, pride and stupidity come bubbling up out of. The abyss he spoke of was the depths of the human heart. He said that all of these things, all all these evil things come from within. As humans, we were made to reflect our wise, loving creator but instead our hearts have become filled with rebellion, filth and wickedness. Just as that is true on an individual basis, it is also true on a cosmic scale. The world, though made by God, has become so full of rebellion and destructiveness that although God normally requires it to be restrained, if it is to be truly dealt with once and for all, he will allow it to come out and show its true colours, to reveal itself for what it truly is. From this abyss we read of these locusts emerging in what appears to be thick smoke spilling out of its mouth, so thick that the sun and moon are darkened. And this is where things get even more tricky. The imagery becomes even more vivid and surreal. What are we to make of this mass swarm of locusts? Are we really to imagine that there will be a huge swarm of gigantic, strange-looking locusts sweeping through the earth, creating mass devastation and havoc? Or is it a metaphor for something else? Well, for us to have a hope of understanding it, again, we need to go back to our Old Testaments. Firstly, the purpose here is to remind us again of the plagues upon Egypt. Remember how we have come across this parallel between God's punishment on Pharaoh and Egypt for not releasing his people, 
and the plagues brought about by the seven seals and the seven trumpets. We've seen similarities time and time again. John wants his original readers to know that just as God didn't leave his people languishing in slavery then, he won't allow his people to remain under the persecution and slavery of their current oppressors now. But we also need to look at something even more specific in the Old Testament, and that's the book of Joel. If you look in chapters 1 and 2 of Joel, we find a depiction of an invasion of an army of locusts. If you look at, up there, you've got a few similarities in the language of Joel and Revelation. We haven't got time to read through both cha- all, all three chapters of Joel, but you can notice the similarities. So in chapter 1, we are introduced uh, to an army of locusts, but it, it's here in chapter 2 that we really see it how the sky is darkened by clouds and blackness, as in verse 3 of Revelation, how these locusts have the appearance of horses, as they do in verse 7 of Revelation, and that they had the sound of chariots uh, rushing into battle, such as verse 9. The depiction of these locusts being like a mighty invading nation is the same through both books. The whole book of Joel is vital uh, for us to read, for us to understand and study Revelation, not just because of the similarities about the locust army, but because of the meaning of the third and final chapter of the book of Joel. In that final chapter, God promises that he will one day restore the land that his people Israel live in after the devastation that they have suffered. He promises that he will deal with those nations that oppose him and his people. And he promises that his very presence will dwell amongst his people and fill his people so that they can truly be the people they were created to be. The promises that God makes here to the nation of Israel are a microcosm, a foretaste of how he will fulfil that promise, not just amongst that small nation, but across the expanse of his creation. These are the promises that we are reading about as we make our way through the book of John's Revelation. Rather than simply restoring the land of Israel, he will restore the whole world to that perfect creation that it was meant to be. Rather than simply deal with those nations that oppose Israel, he will deal with the ultimate enemy of every man, woman and child, evil and sin. And rather than simply live within the temple of Jerusalem and amongst the people of Israel, we have the promise found in chapter 21 that the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. But back to the locusts, what are we to make of them? For some people, they understand them to be literal locusts, albeit a a demonic variety with a dangerous sting like a scorpion and a strange appearance. However, I believe this takes the text too literally. And as we have seen time and time again, John uses metaphor and allusion to make his point. Others have interpreted the almost mechanical appearance of these creatures to mean that they must be some modern military machine like attack helicopters. However, this does what so many are inclined to do and make the text all about us and all about our current situation or our understanding of the world. What we need to understand here is not even what these locusts represent, but the emotion and horror that they evoke upon the reader. Many of us may never have even seen a locust in person, perhaps maybe you've seen one in a zoo or something like it, and so they do not conjure up the feeling of fear and dread and woe to us as Western modern readers but imagine you are living in ancient Asia or even a more recent Africa or Middle East you live in a land where water is much more scarce and you and your whole family are reliant on the growth of crops 
A swarm of locusts turning up in your village would not just be a case of getting a pest spray out and swatting them away. They brought utmost devastation, and they still do. The reason John describes smoke darkening the sun and moon is probably not because he is actually seeing smoke, but because swarms of locusts are so great that they resemble huge clouds of smoke that cause the sky to darken, as you can see in one of those pictures up there. Sorry. In 1915, in Palestine, a swarm of locusts flew overhead for five days, darkening the sky and leaving droppings everywhere. The devastation that they left behind was total. Swarms were four miles in length and 100 feet thick as they ploughed through the area, demolishing all crops as they went. In Algiers in 1866, another swarm caused such devastation that following the plague, over 200,000 people died of starvation. The threat of an arrival of a plague of locusts was the stuff of nightmares. And that is exactly the point that John is making here. All your worst dreams are made real in an instant. The fifth angel has unleashed something utterly terrifying. These locusts, whatever they may be, do not have unlimited power, though. They are not allowed to kill, but only inflict pain. Granted, that pain is extremely severe, as we read in verse 6, that those who suffer would rather be dead than bear it. These locusts are given the power of a scorpion. Scorpion stings are usually not fatal, but they are extremely painful. Also, they are only given five months to bring about their suffering. This reflects John's awareness that five months is the life cycle of a locust, but more importantly, that their work, though horrible, is limited. As ever, John wants his readers to be aware that God and the Lamb remain sovereign. They are in charge, even in the midst of such pain and suffering. Even though for evil to be conquered, it must be allowed to come out and do its worst for a time. There is purpose in this and every judgment, and that is to turn people to repentance. Five months of torment is a strong contrast to an eternity of torment. Ultimately, their real limitation is clear to see by those who are protected from such suffering, those who have the seal of God on their foreheads. Again, just as the Israelites who carried the mark of the blood of the Lamb on their homes were secure from the angel of death, and as those in Ezekiel's vision were protected when they had God's mark, so too are those who are covered by the seal of God that we read about in chapter 7. These locusts are, I don't believe, are meant to be understood as literal locusts. For starters, a locust has one thing on its mind, and that is to eat and ravage every crop that it can find. But what do we read here? These locusts do not touch the grass or the earth or any plant or any tree. But even more so, the description of them reveals them to be something very different, I believe. Perhaps they are some monstrous creature that we find difficult to imagine. Much of John's description is reminiscent of a creature from Persian mythology called a manticore, which looked a bit like that. Uh, it had um, human um, face and uh, body and teeth of a lion, as well as the tail of a scorpion, very similar to John's depiction here. Again, John mixes metaphors and descriptions to get across his message. Whatever this invading force is, it will be fearsome. However, I think we need to remind ourselves again of the context in which John's readers lived. As I have already said, some people view these creatures as literal mutant locusts that will be unleashed upon the earth. But I think when we consider the situation that this, uh, these early churches were in, 
as well as what we know of John's use of descriptive language, we see something else in these terrifying creatures. Whereas the book of Joel describes literal locusts in terms of a human army, John uses Joel's locusts as humans language and flips it on its head to describe humans as locusts. In the same way that he reverses what we know about locusts, instead of them attacking crops, they attack humans, John reverses Joel's depiction to describe a human army. As we consider his description of these creatures, we can start to see that John is most likely evoking the fear of a human invasion and the terror and devastation that follows war. Firstly, the locusts resemble horses prepared for battle. Then they wear something on their heads, like crowns of gold. Now remember that throughout this book, crowns are awarded to the conqueror. So here's a suggestion that this invading army has already won the battle. They've already been given the crown. Their victory is inevitable. However, what is on their head is not, are not actual crowns, are they? But it says something like crowns. The Roman Empire took great pride in what it called its Pax Romanis, its peace of, of Rome, its empire of peace and prosperity. However, northern barbarian tribes were feared as a major threat to that peace and prosperity. History tells us that conflict with these barbarian tribes would be a major part in the fall of the Roman Empire. Barbarians were known for their blonde hair, which was usually tied up in a headband, giving the appearance of a crown. Their hair was also long in contrast to the short hair of Roman men. Part of John's description is that these creatures had hair like women. Having teeth like a lion signifies their power and ability to harm and injure with their weapons. And their breastplates of iron describe the kind of armour worn by both soldiers and horses in the first century. That the sound of their wings was like the thundering of many horses and chariots rushing into battle completes this image of an invading foreign force hell-bent on bringing destruction and suffering. Now, as we move on into the second half of the chapter, the language draws on the fears of military invasion even further. Whilst the locusts here appear to evoke fears about the barbarian enemy to the north, the blowing of the sixth trumpet will trigger fears of an even more ferocious enemy feared by all in Rome, the Parthians from the east, in what would be uh, modern-day Iran and its surrounding areas. For now, though, there is one more character to consider, the king of this invading army, the angel of the abyss, whose name is Abaddon in Hebrew or Apollyon in Greek. Who is this king that emerges from the abyss at the blowing of the fifth trumpet? Abaddon is a Hebrew term for destruction and is often referred to in the Old Testament um, as, the, as a place of destruction alongside Sheol. But it is also personified at times, and, and that is the case here in Revelation. This character is literally the destroyer. The Greek version of the name Apollyon also means destroyer, but is connected to the Greek god Apollo, who is famed for his destructive power. As we've seen before, Roman emperors uh, likened themselves to gods, and Apollo was the favoured god of Domitian. And we know, uh, as we've seen before, that uh, he was one of the main persecutors of Christians in the first century. Domitian saw himself as Apollo incarnate. Interestingly, the locust was one of Apollo's symbols. Um, he was the god of pestilence and plague. For John's early readers, this reference um, would be clear and would have been understood that this destroyer 
would be an evil, tyrannical character who seeks power at all costs. For them, the person they imagined was the emperor. For other generations, it would be people like Stalin, Hitler, Pol Pot, Saddam Hussein that come to mind. John's purpose is to present evil and destruction personified. Evil that brings about suffering and harm to even its own people in order that they gain power. Ultimately, the origin of evil and sin is Satan. And the Dead Sea Scrolls, he is referred to as the angel of the pit and the spirit of destruction. Very similar to what the language we read about here. Later in the book, Satan has the power and dominion over the beast that also emerges from the pit. I don't believe that we are to imagine literal Satan emerging from a physical pit somewhere on this planet in this passage, but rather that the originator of all evil will be allowed to act and move through the darkness of human hearts as he has done ever since the fall. Here, however, that evil is beginning to reach its pinnacle. It is truly out in the open. Despite it all, though, God remains in control. Again, he allows this to happen in order that evil and darkness is brought out of the shadows and into the light, plain for all to see for what it is. The opportunity to turn from such evil is still there, but who will take that opportunity and who will remain in the darkness under the power of this evil destroyer king remains to be seen. We will find out the answer later in the chapter, as well as much more in chapter 10, as God's plan is unveiled further. For now, though, what has this strange passage about mutant locusts got to say to us today? For us, it is difficult to appreciate the awful scenario that John is presenting to those early churches. He combines all of their worst nightmares into one catastrophic image. Creatures that had historically brought famine and disaster in past times of judgment are described in truly horrific terms. Emerging from a bottomless pit, led by an evil king, bringing pain and suffering wherever they go. How might John depict such a nightmare scenario for us today? I'll leave that to your imaginations. We are not, and neither were the first readers of this letter, supposed to take all of this literally. This isn't God's message and it isn't what John is trying to do. As usual, he is combining what we know from the Old Testament and how God worked in judgment and redemption with the historical context that his readers were experiencing, along with a message that is for each and every generation of Christian until Jesus returns. What or who the locusts are is not important. What they represent is. Evil forces are very real, and whilst they can, they can, sorry, and whilst they can, they will do their utmost to bring chaos and destruction to God's good creation. They emerge from an abyss, again, not a literal hole in the earth, as some have imagined, but a place of darkness, a place where Satan is allowed to dwell and influence. And I believe that Jesus was very clear where that abyss can be found when he said, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, etc., etc. All these evil things come from within. We often speak uh, as Christians of us being the temple of the Holy Spirit, don't we? The literal dwelling place of God here on earth. Well, when the Holy Spirit isn't invited in, another guest takes residence. He moves in and he is very difficult to evict. If your heart isn't a temple of the living God, 
it will soon be the abyss of the destroyer, of Satan and his forces of evil. As we leave here today, make sure that you have chosen very wisely who you have signed the tenancy agreement of your heart over to.